It is the season of teams, and we think we know teams very well. Across the land in thousands of communities ranging from small Kansas public high schools to NCAA Division universities, teams are gathering, teams are practicing. They're listening sometimes to coaches, they're running drills, equipment trainers are testing shoulder pads and knee braces and unraveling miles of athletic tape and testing those molded polycarbonate helmets that are supposed to stop concussions. Cheerleaders are chanting strange, virtually meaningless slogans that are supposed to inspire the warriors out on the field. Local newspapers are saturated with speculation on how will the team do this year? Where will they finish? Where will they rank? Will they make it to state finals? Will they make it to the national championship? Do they have the drive, the talent, the coaching, the bench, the backup, the fire, the luck to propel them to the top rank of America's unofficial religion? Which is to say nothing of the professional teams, the multi-billion dollar industry that is the National Football League seems to create its own weather. What did Tom Brady say to the reporters yesterday? And what will become of Deflategate? What kind of a commissioner is Roger Goodell and will the courts ultimately trim his powers? What are the pundits saying this morning about the team? You know, our team, our team's chances, our team's chances in the 16 battles that lie ahead. 10,000 hours of sports radio each day keep all the faithful focused on the team, our team, our guys, the ones on whom all our hopes are pinned which is to say nothing of all the fantasy football leagues now organizing and drafting players over pizza and beer, analyzing arcane statistics. Websites and apps cater to our craving for drafting up, making trades, burying ourselves in the game within the game as we construct our fantasy teams. Ironic, isn't it, that our fantasy teams will never take a field or play upon the artificial grass. Our team is probably no longer the ones that wear the familiar jerseys and and play in a stadium 100 miles from where we live. No, our team is the one that we have magically built by drafting this quarterback, that running back, this tight end, that field goal kicker from 32 professional teams across the land. An entire television network, NFL Red Zone, now caters to our obsession with having the latest information on all of our fantasy teams. The latest numbers from Ipsos Research tell us that more than one in 10 Americans 33.6 million, to be exact, are now playing fantasy football as faithfully as they follow the professional game, which would suggest that even though it's Sabbath, some number of you have thought about it or even checked your cell phone since service began this morning. That's a number larger than the number of Americans who go to the movies each week. It's 12 times the number of Americans who get married each year. It's nearly half as many as attend any church on any weekend. 
and it's roughly equivalent to the number of people running for the Republican presidential nomination. It's the season of teams, and we think we know teams very well, which is all a way of saying that we are unprepared, remarkably unprepared by our culture and our language and our history and our emotions to understand the passage of Scripture that lies in front of us today. We read in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles to be with him and he sent them out to proclaim the message. And even if football isn't our game or our religion, even if we don't spend our Sunday afternoons and evenings, our Monday evenings, our Thursday evenings watching football, even if we spend it watching reruns of Frasier or Everybody Loves Raymond, we think we understand this passage because we think we know a lot about teams. Jesus needed a team because every successful enterprise needs a team, so Jesus staged a draft. Not exactly a fantasy draft, but a draft nonetheless. Jesus chose 12 players. Mark even gives us their names. How complex could it be? These were the elite. These were the top flight players. These were the ones to wear the burgundy and gold. These were the ones who were going to go out winning the game and the world for Christ. Are there any mysteries here? It's a season of teams. And we think we know teams very well. And once again, our persistent habit of reading our culture back into the Word of God results in some fundamental misunderstandings of that moment that Mark is trying to describe for us in his Gospel. We superimpose on Scripture patterns that are familiar to us. We make the logical a fallacy of assuming that anything so important as a professional sports team Anything so vital as a professional sports team would have to have existed as a cultural model for millennia. I mean, weren't there professional gladiators in Rome, we tell ourselves? And so the Son of God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, the uncreated creator, the one of whom Scripture says it hold, he holds all things together, he becomes in our minds a kind of super coach. A laudatory figure who has earned our respect through years out there in the rain and snow on the practice field. He must have won at least 10 Super Bowls, we say. He's kind of an inspired, inspiring purveyor of, of pep talks and camaraderie and better blocking strategies. And, and we sure hope he has some wise comment to make at the after-game interview. We follow him, we say, because he's the winningest coach of all time. Football and faith have finally fused. The two have become one. It would be better for our grasp of God's word this morning if there were somehow a digital eraser, a cultural mind scrubber on the back of the pew in front of you or in the binding of your Bible. Only when our thinking has been purged of all of our facts and fantasies about forming teams are we ready to understand this moment that Mark describes in chapter 3. He tells us Jesus withdrew into a mountain and called 12 persons whom he wanted to be especially close to him. 
This wasn't a selection based on a coach's usual assessments of, of talent. Muscle strength, hand-eye coordination, vertical leaping ability, sure hands. Not a one of these men, not one of them had ever done before what he was going to teach them to do. Not a one of them had in their muscle fibers or in their genes or in their family background or in their high school training any of the skills that would qualify them for the all-Galilee team, never mind the all-Judea team. We finally have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus' selection of the twelve to be his closest companions was based on a set of criteria about which we know very little. It certainly wasn't based on a set of stats in his playbook. In Jesus' selection of Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, there is a sovereign mystery which makes it very plain that we don't understand why he chose them. We think we do because we are hungry for the idea that Jesus recognizes talent as in mine. Maybe it was Peter's strong will that made Jesus pick him to be one of the twelve, and so we build whole sermons about that. Maybe it was Andrew's quiet spirit, a phlegmatic soul set among a bunch of flaming cholerics. Maybe it was the sensitivity of John or the questions of Thomas or, or the potential of Judas that made Jesus pick them. We have it as a rule of faith that, that talent has to be recognized, even if it's not yet developed. And that the best coaches are the ones who see the latent talent in all of us. But my friends, grace, grace teaches us that we are called to follow Jesus not because of anything we have in ourselves, but only through the mystery of his compassion and his call. If you can adequately explain the genesis of grace, if you can tell me why Christ in his mercy would look down on broken me and broken you and say that he wants to spend eternity with us, then you are probably qualified to tell me why a group of fishermen and tax collectors and political revolutionaries and schemers became his 12 closest companions. But only then. Grace has its reasons which reason cannot know. Grace has its reasons which reason cannot know. All of our depth charts, all of our stats, all of our finely tuned calibrations about human ability and passion and, and persistence, they can never account for the fact that Jesus has approached you and me and without any qualities that should attract his attention, he has nonetheless said, I want you. Come follow me. Come be my disciple. Here I want to say that it's, it's far too easy. It's hopelessly naive to say that Jesus chose these 12 because they were men. That the facts of their biology and anatomy were somehow determinative to Jesus. A lot has been said 
and a lot of it unwise, about the Savior's preference for men in spiritual leadership. And it's been said, I think, chiefly because it flatters male egos. And in case you haven't noticed, there is a steady market for flattering male egos, both on the football field and in the fellowship of Jesus. Any group that finds itself with power and authority in any culture naturally assumes that it's something inherent in their genes, their biology, their anatomy, or their culture that propelled them to the top and to first place. So Anglo-Europeans foolishly asserted that there was something in their cultural history that made them the fit rulers of the world. And native peoples from New England to New Guinea were supposed to bow to their collective will. Lighter-skinned Caucasians declared that something as ephemeral as skin pigmentation was the vital fact of headship, and we have been suffering with that tragedy in this nation for 400 years now. Ask me sometime about how in my own Italian ancestry, the anomalies of skin color from north to south have made men and women think differently about the quality of their lives and even their potential to live a full, happy life. And in the name of Jesus, born of a woman, ministered to by women, who consciously and systematically gave women a dignity and worth they were denied everywhere else in their culture, whose dying thought was for the care of a woman who was first welcomed from his tomb by a woman, whose first missionary proclaiming his resurrection was a woman, and who insists on calling the fellowship that follows him his bride. Tell me that in his name, half the human race, half of those for whom he died, should subtly or directly be told that the vital fact for Jesus choosing the twelve had to do that only men could exercise spiritual leadership. Have I stepped on your toes yet? If pressed, I would tell you that my educated guess for the gender of the twelve had more to do with Jesus not compromising his ministry by traveling in mixed company than it did because of any supposed set of spiritual leadership characteristics that resides only among males. Like Jacob, he had nowhere to lay his head except a stone pillow. The scandal, the ungodly scandal that would have followed would have tainted his character in the minds of thousands he wanted to know of the kingdom of God. That's why I think the twelve are men. And it should be noted with a smile that I suspect many late-night swims in Galilee would have been unthinkable in mixed company. You're going to spend more than an afternoon persuading me that Philip was somehow more of a disciple than Mary Magdalene. It's going to take more breath than I think you have to convince me that Martha was only second string while Nathaniel played first team. 
Again, let me say it. I believe with all my heart that it wasn't for qualities within the 12 that Jesus chose the 12. He didn't call them to travel with him because he loves fishermen more than Pharisees, or he thought tax collectors were more special than shepherds, or because their gender somehow made them more significant to him. Grace has its reasons which reason cannot know. Do you know this grace? Have you experienced this grace? Have you made your life available to this grace? Well, the skeptic in the back row may be muttering, you know, if, if talent doesn't qualify me and skill development doesn't qualify me, if gender doesn't do it and culture doesn't do it and national origin doesn't do it and race doesn't do it, what is it I contribute to the team? If nothing in me or with me or by me or through me in any way enriches the reality of this group that Jesus is gathering, why should I give up everything that's familiar and go off and follow him? And whoever you are, you have just asked a brilliant question. You've laid your finger on the mysterious question which has caused millions of men and women over 20 centuries to stop and pause and think and ponder and reflect and doubt and pray. It's a question Jesus was entirely aware of in the first century, and it's a question that Jesus is exquisitely aware of in the 21st century. It's a question he anticipated before he ever made that first invitation to two disciples of John the Baptist, and he said to them, come and see. Come and see. It's a question he knows is hanging around the corners of your mind on a Labor Day weekend when you're wondering what deeper discipleship might possibly mean. He's thought a long time about this. And still, still he has the divine audacity to stand in front of broken you and broken me and say, come, follow me, be my disciple. Over in Luke's Gospel, we find a series of short stories that illustrate how easy it was for persons to misunderstand the call of Jesus back then and how easy it is for us to misunderstand the call of Jesus today. We learned last week from Anthony Kent's exploration of Mark 2 and 3 that the other gospel writers, the synoptic writers, Luke and Matthew, almost certainly built their histories of Jesus on Mark's shorter and more dramatic action. And when Luke gets around to telling us his version of the choosing of the Twelve, when Luke gets around to the point of trying to answer this fundamental question of what it is that we might bring of value that would enrich the cause of Jesus... He tells us some very troubling little stories. If you'd like to see them for yourself, turn to Luke chapter 9 and verses 57 to 62. We don't read these often in church because, quite frankly, they are not comfortable. But I remind you, they are still there, comfortable or not. 
Luke chapter 9, 57 and 62, just after Luke has told his version of the choosing of the 12. As they were going along the road, he writes, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who has put his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me say it clearly this morning, and let me say it slowly. These are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. They run completely against the grain of everything our culture and training and background has taught us to believe about human value. If you thought what you heard when I read you Jesus' words was that Jesus was turning down those who came and volunteered, If you thought what you heard was that Luke was recording stories of those who made offers to Jesus that he did not accept, then you heard correctly. And it's not for nothing that Luke includes these painful stories of those who came and offered themselves to Jesus as though they would somehow enrich his cause by so doing. He does it in the same chapter in which he tells of the selection of the twelve. Luke tells us more completely what Mark surely understood. Jesus doesn't select a team based on our usual characteristics of talent and and skill and courage and faith and insight and honesty and, and potential. And he specifically isn't interested in those who do that most American of things and step forward and volunteer. Quite frankly, this runs against the tenor of a dozen songs I learned in my childhood, and you may have too. If I walked over to the piano there now, and I sat down and pounded out with my stubby fingers an old Sabbath school song called Volunteers for Jesus, some large number of you here in the room could still sing all the words even though they haven't crossed your lips for 30 years. A volunteer for Jesus, a soldier true, others have enlisted, why not you? Jesus is the captain, we will never fear. Will you be enlisted as a volunteer? We were, in that age, all missionary volunteers. Our songs, our stories, our sermons underlined that value. In a century dominated by the two greatest wars humanity has ever known. In a 40-year struggle against the red threat. We read our culture back into the scripture the way we often do. We needed volunteers. And so we sang about volunteers, whether scripture taught that that was the way to come to Jesus or not. We needed brave men and women peering at their radar screens in the wee small hours of the morning. And so we called for volunteers. There was nothing more honorable, more noble, more American than being a volunteer. Surely Jesus wouldn't turn down one of those. 
But my friends, he did. And he does. And he will. It isn't volunteers who formed the 12 that Jesus called to be closest to him. And it isn't volunteers that Jesus is looking for in this congregation today. He's looking for those who've come face to face with the stark reality that we bring nothing to him that enriches his cause. We can't amplify it. We can't improve it. We can't make it more valuable. It is, in fact, an act of grace that you're sitting here this morning. It is an act of grace that I can open my mouth this morning. It is an act of grace that Jesus calls us because of qualities in him and not in us. All that seems to us like righteousness, all the posturing we do about spiritual habits and lifestyle practices, these are, in fact, no more than filthy rags. All the little games we play with each other to achieve spiritual one-upsmanship. You know the kind. Yes, I understand that you're still wrestling with eliminating all dairy from your diet. Yes, I too at one point wondered about the God-given gift of the celery diet. Yes, I know you're still tempted by the chocolate over which the Lord has given me final victory. All these are symptoms and painful symptoms of the fact that we haven't yet fully grasped that it's grace and only grace that is at the heart of the call of Jesus to our lives. How does the song say it? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Is that the cry of your heart today? Are those the words that come up quietly in your soul when you see Jesus standing in front of you? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. If so, my friends, if those are the words your heart responds to Jesus, then you are being prepared to be one of his modern 12 or one of his 12,000 or one of his 12 times 12,000, which last time I checked still equals 144,000. What then is at the heart of this life to which Jesus calls us? Notice these intriguing lines in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. He went up to the mountain. He called those to himself whom he wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12. He named them to be apostles. They were to be with him, to be sent out to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. Whole sermons could be preached and ought to be preached about the first fact of being a disciple is simply being with Jesus. For many of us, it is hard to grow that quiet where we can be comfortable with time spent with him and not nervously rush away to play all of our fantasy games of life. 
Even more sermons could be preached and have been preached, some of them by me. About that second reality toward which Jesus calls disciples. Suffice it to say, when he says that it was part of their task to go out and proclaim the message, most of us have figured that out who have been in Seventh-day Adventist churches for more than a few weeks. All of the sermons, all of the homilies, all of the inspirational pep talks, all of the pre-game hoopla and the cheerleading that we try to do to get weary and tired and fearful people off their seats at the 50-yard line and out onto the field. Well, my friends, how well does it succeed unless some disciple has a grasp of grace? Answer for yourselves. Look around. You see, you already know that sermon that tells you about your duty, your obligation to go and tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell the world. And if I'm not missing my guess on most occasions, you have assumed that the preacher or me making the call was tacitly referring to someone more talented, someone more extroverted someone more eloquent, someone more gregarious than you feel. And thus, naturally enough, you exempted yourself. You chose the bench instead of the field because there were more talented players. But friends, only grace can make disciples. Only grace can qualify disciples. Only grace is going to motivate a man or woman to get up and do from love what they will never do from duty. Only the recognition that my life of brokenness has been restored and recreated through the goodness of Jesus is ever going to get me to say something to the guy who cleans my suits or the woman who mows my lawn or the clerk who scans my groceries or that migrant in whose mouth I put the food. Only grace received will ever get me talking about the loveliness of Jesus. Duty will almost never do it. The last thing that Jesus lists among the three qualities of those he says will be true about the 12, the 144,000, pick your number, who gather around him. He says that they will be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. It's that last phrase that I think unnerves a lot of us smooth, sophisticated 21st century types. I mean, why did he have to include that line about casting out demons? It it seems rather foreign to a world in which we more frequently speak about mental illness, diagnosable and treatable conditions. We have it as a cultural artifact of our faith that probably most of what the ancient world called demonic activity was in fact just undiagnosed mental illness. I mean, if you tell your psychiatrist that you see a host of demons camped above the Spencerville church sign out here on New Hampshire Avenue, she may keep you for what is politely known as observation. 
And yet, the same Lord who created the human body, the same Lord who bent down in the dirt and fashioned all the intricacies of nerve endings and synapses and autonomic processes and the personal characteristics that come out of our minds, he's the same one who points us to the reality of evil in this world. He sends his disciples out into a world, he says, that is charged with supernatural realities. Jesus believed then and Jesus believes now that the world is charged with supernatural forces that are contending for dominance in the arena of human life. The same Lord who opened the eyes of the servant of Elisha on the rooftops of Dothan in 600 BC and saw the horses and chariots of fire arrayed upon the mountainside, he's now reminding us that behind the screen of everyday life there is a reality which he understands and which he would like to get us to understand. And he calls that reality the great controversy. He calls that reality the great controversy between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels. Let's be very clear about it today. Jesus was not inviting his disciples to believe in something that wasn't real. Jesus wasn't playing some game of mental mirage to get them to believe in the reality of supernatural beings who don't really exist. Jesus is inviting his disciples then and Jesus is inviting his disciples now to participate in a struggle against evil. In its most extreme forms, it takes the form of that demonic possession which some of you have encountered and most of us have heard about in mission stories. And in its more subtle and insidious effects, it takes the form of millions of women and children who are enslaved in trafficking around the globe. It takes the form of tons of food rotting in the bins on docks owned by corrupt government officials who refuse to move it to where the hungry are because it would decrease the money in their pockets. You see, friends, there is evil in this world. It is not all some diagnosable illness. The demons that must be cast out in the first century or the 21st century, they are both personal and systemic. Yes, They can appear with terror and ferocity in some settings, and they can appear as insidiously as the way institutions grind down the poor and oppress those without power. When Jesus points his disciples to that third task to which he calls them, being with him, sharing the message, and casting out demons, He's doing so because in the passage, that's the context. The two verses before the calling of the twelve are all about casting out demons. The ten verses about the calling of the twelve are all about casting out demons. Is it any wonder that Jesus would make this part of his essential charge to those whom he calls to be closest to him? Peter was invited into a world that was charged with supernatural realities, and so are you. 
John was called to be a disciple in a world in which there was a great and cosmic conflict between good and evil. He was called to participate in it, and so are you. Mary Magdalene, whose mind had once been the haunt of demons, now stands as a symbol to all of us of liberation from those forces, and she will be that for all time because God did miraculously through grace in her life. This is the reality to which we're called. This is the great controversy in which we live. My friends, it is much more than the name of a 19th century book. It is, Jesus says, the arena in which he places us. He tells us in his word, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Don't take my word for it this morning. Take his word for it. It's grace that calls you to come and follow Jesus. It's nothing in yourself. It's grace that gives you the stamina to keep walking with Jesus, and he renews it every morning. It's grace that sets your overworked and legalistic heart free and makes you begin to sing a song you thought you might never sing. And it's grace that opens up our eyes to see that there is more than evil in this world, that in fact the horses and chariots of fire are still up there on the mountainside, for as Elisha once said to his servant, those who are with us finish it now, are more than those who are with them. That's the call of grace to disciples. Grace has its reasons, which reason cannot know. Have you heard that call today? Have you responded to that call today? If you have, take that hymnal in front of you. Open it up and sing with me a song about grace. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace.